Thank you. Please be seated. We're in our winter series called Big Life, and this week I'm going to focus on the third principle of three biblical principles that, when combined, give us what I want you to think of as a doctrine of things. The Bible actually talks a lot about what we're to believe about things, about resources. And we've been building an understanding of that by looking at three principles. The first week we looked at contentment. And then last week we looked at the idea of stewardship. Today we're going to look at the third principle, generosity, which happens also to be one of our core values as a church. We have taken our theme verse from Colossians 2, 6, and 7, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. And then there are three priorities, rooted in Christ, strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with thanksgiving. We have received Christ Jesus as Lord, which means that we are a gospel community. It's at the foundation of all that we are. We are gospel-focused, gospel-founded, gospel-driven. And the life that comes out of that is uh, committed to three priorities. The first is worship, second is community, and the third, overflowing with thanksgiving, is about generosity. The emphasis in uh, Paul's language there is not in the gratitude. The gratitude is assumed. Christians ought to be grateful people. It's the overflowing nature of it that is emphasized there. In other words, my gratitude overflows into a life where others are grateful as well because of what I bring to them. It's the overflowing part that is what we're focusing on today. And it's an essential principle for us to not only understand how God views our things, but how we're supposed to use them. Now, this is a church that I'm proud to say has shown its generosity factor over and over again. Not only in the way that we step up to needs that show up in our city or with orphans in Uganda and the ways that you just have responded over and over again so generously always above and beyond the goals we set. Also, this church is where it is today because very early on, those that came really committed to help us finance it in order to get it here. And that tradition continues today, and I'm very, very grateful for the generosity that's all around this room. Now, some of you, as you've been listening to our teaching on your things and how God wants to use them, uh, you recognize it's not an area you've really developed yet. It's not where it should be, and you know it. And what I want you to do is to feel encouraged, not guilty. Our goal over these last couple weeks has not been to push you down, but to inspire you. And I want you to be inspired by the thought that there are people all around this room sitting with you that have learned the secret to that. You're being blessed because of their generosity. And in the same way God has taught them that, you can learn it as well and bless others. And I have asked Rich Gordon to come and share his story about how God got a hold of his life and also his stuff and taught him how to use it for the kingdom. So let, let's welcome Rich. Yeah. Uh, good morning. Um, last week, Pastor asked us all to read something up there which started with, I am rich. And uh, it's real easy for me to say that. <laughs> um, my email address is not poor Gordon. But, you know, joking aside, I, I've learned through the years that I am rich, and uh, 
um, in more than name, but in everything that I owe to God. Um, I became a Christian at a very young age, came from a broken home, uh, was a preteen, uh, went to a city church in, in Worcester, the one we actually had the baptismal service um, at uh, Pleasant Street Baptist Church. And um, early on, in when I first got my first full-time job, I was 18, and I was uh, got a full-time job. I was making 3.45 an hour. And uh, I learned early on that some portion of that I should give back to God. Um, I had great, wise uh, examples around me, uh, and through them and through uh, study, uh, I've really gone through a journey that I'd like to share with you. I share it my GPS with money, uh, and the GPS is really an acronym for uh, be generous, be prudent, and be smiling. Uh, a lot of it is really the, some of the stuff that Pastor Tom has already spoken about, uh, will speak about today and next week, and I'll try to focus on generosity. But the prudent piece is actually an important piece to my uh, uh, learning to be generous, and that is because I basically look and I'll just talk briefly about being prudent on what I spend, how I spend it, how I invest both in my earthly investments for things like retirement, et cetera, but more importantly, how I invest in uh, my eternal investments, uh, the things that are really matter to the kingdom of God. Because being generous is one thing, but I mean, there's a lot of people looking for money, whether it's televangelists or every different person calling on your phone soliciting. And I think you need to be prudent. You need to be prudent in lifestyle so that you learn to live what God has provided us with. Being generous, when I decided to come up here, I didn't want to say, oh, look at me, I'm generous. I, you know, I, I, I do good. That's the least of my... Uh, as a matter of fact, it would shy me away from coming up here. But I think as Christians, as we go through our life, we need to be encouraged. We need examples of biblical principles that have been applied in life and uh, see that they are true and that they do work. And giving is one of those things. It's interesting. We talk about tithing, and I'm, conv I'm convinced, hopefully you won't get mad at me for saying this, that the New Testament doesn't teach us to tithe, but it does teach us to be generous. And uh, the practice of tithing in the Old Testament is something that I think is a great basis, and it is something that I learned early on. And I started, I get my check, $120, and say, oh, good, I get taken home $120, I'd write a check for 12 You give it to the church. Um, at some point early on, God had uh, instilled the concept of first fruits, my, my take on the first fruits is that everything I've got, the first stuff should go to God, and that's even before the taxes, before the government takes their stuff out. And so I try to apply that. Now, as a young person, not making much money, I got married when I was 20. We had kids very young. I'm not encouraging that, but uh, that's the way it was. Um, we were faithful to tithing. God blessed me with a wife that was consistent with that principle as well. You know, we really didn't have a lot of money. We, I was a, the classic coupon cutter, triple coupons, go to the store, buy things, one car, frugal as you can be. But God blessed um, tremendously. And I'll just share one story where um, I had a 75 Saab transmission went. If you own Saabs, you know they're expensive to repair. Um, we looked at the options. The cheapest option was to get a used transmission from shipped up from Pennsylvania junkyard. It would cost me $500. I did not have $500. And so uh, we prayed about it. We said, okay, let's, we ordered the, I think we had to put down a 10% deposit. Didn't have the money. 
uh, prayed about it, and we received a check in the mail uh, for the exact amount we needed from some church we didn't go to, but we knew some people there. The note said this is a gift uh, from an anonymous donor, and it was just a blessing that I would have never experienced if I was never in need. And so um, I think those are the blessings that God wants us to experience that help us develop as Christians. Now, as I've gone on in life, I've become, uh, sometimes I think I've become less generous because I've got so much more. Um, and so my encouragement to you is if you're in that point in life, continue to grow in your generosity. Maybe a tithe isn't what it should be. Maybe it's more than that. And one of the things that I've tried to practice is that if I get special bonuses or something of that nature, a tithe isn't going to cut it. As much of it as I can give back to God is possible because it really is way above what I need and I've been blessed with. I may not be in need now, but now God has put me uh, in the position to help bless those who are maybe with a need. And I think that's part of our growth process. So I can vouch for the fact that I am convinced that being generous, uh, using tithing or uh, some principle of uh, giving sacrificially to God uh, is biblical and God provides. I've never gone without. We've never been in debt. We've never had a bill collector. We have been blessed beyond anything I could ever imagine growing up as a poor kid in Plumlee Village down here in uh, Worcester. So uh, I am not saying that give generously to God and uh, you'll, you'll get millions back. I mean, that's not the message. But once you develop a, a sense of what you really need, what we really owe to God, who is so generous in providing his son for us, and then constantly looking to stretch that, uh, even when we get more. Uh, I think it's more difficult for me now to be prudent uh, because I don't have to think about what I spend as much. It was much easier when I had nothing. Um, so wherever you are in life, if you're young, I would really encourage you to start tithing. It is something you will never, ever, ever regret. If you're older in life and you have uh, bills and responsibilities, start a plan. Figure out what you can give to God first, and I guarantee you he will bless that. There is absolutely, it is it's in his word, and it has been in my life, and it has been in the lives of others that I know. Smiling, that was the other one, be smiling. Uh, those are principles of being content uh, in all things. Um, and if you're content, I don't see how you cannot smile. And the other one is God loves a cheerful giver. I will close with um, a little story with my, uh, one of my sons. Uh, we were giving allowance, I think it was $3 a week. And um, I noticed he was giving money into the, um, the offering. And he was putting a dollar in. So I said, well, I need to just talk to him about what tithing is. So I sat down and I said, listen, you, you, know, you get $3 a week. Tithing is 10%. You really only need to put 30 cents in. So I was trying to teach him the value of money. And his response to me was something I always remember. And I, I wish it was our heartfelt uh, attitude toward giving to God. And he said, Dad, I'm not just going to give God my loose change. It was... Uh, Something I'll never forget. So, thank you. Thank you, Rich. You'll notice on the back side of your notes today, we're going to end with the point, how to be rich. 
from First Timothy, and Cody reminded me that actually works two ways today, because I think in some way we, we'd all like to follow in the track of what Rich has said. I want to say a few things just that came to my mind while Rich was talking. Um, he talked about learning to give when he was young. I'm most proud of a good number of our young adults here who uh, do tithe, who give from small paychecks that they get every week, and I know what it, what it takes for them to do that, and I'm very, very proud of our young adults who do that sacrificially now. They're developing that habit, and I, I believe God's blessing you for that, and uh, will continue to bless you in the future. I, I believe that your being faithful with small things will allow God to trust you with more. But also, moms and dads, how you are with your money is how your kids are going to be with their money. Some of you are not giving to the Lord because you think it's more important to take care of your kids first. And what you're telling them is that they come first. And actually, they don't. They come second to God. You're not helping your kids by giving them what belongs to God. You're not teaching them to trust God first. And I want to tell you, the entire Gordon family practices generosity because of what they've seen in their parents. I didn't plan to share that. Hope you don't mind me pointing that out, Rich, but uh, I did anyway, so there we go. (laughs) Be inspired by that thought. Let's just repeat our principles. We started with the idea of contentment. Contentment is trusting in and being happy in the one who provides, not what he provides, and recognizing that we actually have plenty If you spend on anything optional, you have extra, and you're actually wealthy. And we saw statistics based on that website, the Global Rich List, that if you earn even as low as $32,000, you're actually a one percenter globally. You earn more than 99% of the world around you. That means that from God's economy, not the U.S. economy, I, I give that, but from God's economy, we're all the rich people. That's why point three is not how to become rich. It's how to act rich, because you are. It's about becoming content and recognizing that the vast majority of my money after basic living expenses is spent on optional things that I've convinced myself are needs. And therefore, I never think I have enough. And if we don't have enough, if we don't have enough in this country, making so much more than the rest of the world, who the heck does? If we aren't the ones that are supposed to bless the rest of the world, who is? So we have to get that in our mind. It's really about becoming content in the provider, not his provision. And then stewardship is an acknowledgement that in the end, I don't own any of it. God owns it all. And the question should never be, how much of my money am I going to give God? The question ought to be, it's all God's money. How much do I dare keep in order to live? It's all his And he wants me to multiply what he's given to me by investing it in eternal purposes. If we can get through those ideas, we can really be liberated to be generous. So what I want to do is walk you through three passages of Scripture, point by point, that help us understand this principle of generosity. And the first passage is in Acts chapter 2 and 4. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 2. You're going to find these verses familiar if you were with us during our study of the book of Acts, because it's the first two snapshots of the early church. 
In between the storyline, Luke steps back and makes some observations about this incredible Holy Spirit miraculously created community of believers. And so we start next um, chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When we typically study this passage, we point out these key marks of the church, the teaching of the word, spiritual community, prayer, the sense of mission, and we point all those things out. But radical generosity was one of the primary values of the church that the Holy Spirit birthed. Now, we actually see that become the primary focus in the next snapshot, and that's chapter four. Beginning at verse 32 of chapter four. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, we know Barnabas from our study of Acts, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So besides the observation of the gospel and the preaching of the apostles, this whole snapshot is about generosity. I'm just going to walk through here and point out several factors of this generosity. The first is that they recognized that there were no owners. It says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Now, some have mistakenly taken these two passages and suggested that the early church was a commune. All of it became common property. But that's actually not what happens here, and if you read the story, you see that's not the case. The statement here is an acknowledgement that none of them own it in the same way that we've learned none of us own anything. It's not that everyone owned it all, it's that God owned it all. None of them owned what they had. So it's that principle of stewardship overflowing. The second idea is that they were all in. They shared everything they had. Again, the second principle of stewardship. It's all God's, therefore it's all available for him to use. One of the problems with our society is that we like the term generosity. A lot of us want to have a reputation of being generous. The problem is we want to buy it cheap. (laughs) Think about that. We want generosity without sacrifice. There's no such thing. I'm not being generous if it doesn't cut into my life in some way. 
according to scripture. Sacrifice is a part of it. So in other words, they said it's all available if that's what God wants. What else do we see? We see true charity. There were no needy among them as a result of this. Imagine that. This is really the fulfillment of what God intended and modeled in the Hebrew law. All of that, of course, was an object lesson for the true fulfillment of the people of God, which was the church. But God set up a system in the Old Testament where everyone gave. Whether you made a small amount, you contributed. And it was all because it was percentage-based and priority-based. You gave first, first fruits, and you gave the same percentage. So in that way, everybody was equal in their giving, but yet not. Everybody gave the 10%. So as Rick said, you make $10, a dollar goes to God. If you make a million dollars, 10% of that goes to God. See? So you gave according to your ability, but yet you all gave equally. And God said to the children of Israel, if you obey the law, if you enact this the way I intended it to be enacted, there will not be a hungry person in the whole nation of Israel. The church understood that. There was true charity. Fourth, there were these random acts of radical generosity. Let's call them that. Wouldn't that be awesome if we had those? Random acts of radical generosity where we not just give some spare money because God's blessed us, but we sell a house. <laughs> we sell land that we've invested in to give to God. That's the example that's given here. That's pretty powerful. Now, the fifth observation is what is happening in the midst of this community of radical generosity. God is moving in great power. He starts, then ends with the same idea of sacrificial generosity, but in the middle of that, verse 33, he says this, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. Now, you may remember that Luke writes very intentionally he has created this statement in such a way that the powerful working of God, the message of the resurrection of Jesus that was transforming the culture around them was sandwiched inside this community and culture of radical generosity. So in other words, the gospel is most powerful when God's community is most generous. All you have to do is follow the history of the early church and recognize that. All the way into the fourth century, when the emperor Julian, who was called Julian the Apostate, because even though Christianity was becoming more and more established in his empire, he rebelled against it. He called Christians atheists, because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. But he was so threatened by them, he wrote in great detail about how those that followed the Roman gods needed to match their generosity, match their lives of piety. And one of the things Julian says, even though he didn't understand the gospel, one of the things he did understand about Christians, even in the fourth century, was summed up in this statement. We Romans take care of our Romans. Pagans take care of pagans. Christians take care of everybody. It was that generosity that was the fuel because people experienced the reality of Jesus when his people were his true hands and feet. They experienced the love of Jesus, which then allowed them to be open to the great message of Jesus 
that would transform their lives, the greatest gift of love. You see, we've flipped that all around. Somewhere along the line, we decided the gospel is trying to convince people about a set of ideas, trying to debate that these ideas are better than any other ideas. And let me tell you something. The gospel, according to Paul, is to people that don't believe it, foolishness. You will never win the debate when you try to make it about whether or not there were six literal days of creation or a literal ark. The only way God changes hearts is when they experience and see a living Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit works in their life and they say, whatever you got, I need. It's that generosity that was the fuel to the message of the gospel. So let me take a point. Why, over the last 150 years, has New England become less and less churched and Christian to the point where today, our six states represent the largest unchurched, unchristian population in the whole United States? Why have we lost ground? I think it's because we've lost sacrifice. We've lost true generosity. We've bought the world's idea of generosity. And we bought it cheaply. Think about that. And ask yourself what would happen if Christians became once again radically, supernaturally generous. Beyond what's reasonable. Because God has called us to it. What would that look like? It would look like what we saw in the first centuries of the early church. Wouldn't that be great to be a part of again? Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, it's interesting that Moses, all the way back before the children of Israel even entered the promised land, saw the potential trap that I think we in America, as our culture has become increasingly affluent, have fallen into. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. This is a generation that has grown up in the wilderness. They've had nothing except the clothes on their back and the food that God miraculously provided for them day in and day out. But they're about to become very affluent. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commandments, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert 
something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the very ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is a warning about the trap of affluence and prosperity. And there's a definite progression that Moses is fearful that the people of God may fall into. The first would be that as they achieve this affluence and provision, they forget to give God the credit and the glory. They forget to worship him. They forget that it came from him. They forget to acknowledge him. And then he says they develop an attitude of pride and entitlement. Says so you'll become prideful. You'll begin thinking that you're worthy of what you have. Verse 17, you may even say, it is my hands and my effort that has brought this great wealth. And he says, you'll, you'll have forgotten that even that ability to give wealth is God's. He even gave that to you. That's what happens when affluence comes our way. Now, I want to be very careful. The Bible does not forbid affluence but it presents a trap if you don't remember God. You develop an attitude of pride and entitlement. Listen to me, your wealth, if you have it, is not because you are a better person or because you are a better Christian. Your wealth is not because you are more deserving than some people. Your wealth is not a reward, but a responsibility. And when you begin thinking that you have all this because you're better than the rest of people around you, you've forgotten God. None of us deserve it. What we deserve is judgment. What we get is grace. And what God puts in our hands is all part of that gift. The third thing that happens when you forget that is that you stop obeying and trusting God. It becomes less important to walk in God's ways because you're less dependent. You don't have to be on your knees as much. You begin drifting from living a godly life and godly priorities. Fourth, we begin to worship other idols. Only for us, the idols are not necessarily other deities, but the very things that we've come to depend on. We begin to worship them, idolize them, cherish them, hold on to them, hang them on our walls, polish them, dust them, and never think even once about sacrificing them for the good of others. They become our idols. And then the last thing that happens as a result is that this leads to spiritual ruin. This is very similar to what we saw Paul talk about to Timothy. And that's where I'm going to ask you to turn with me next, 1 Timothy when he warns that the love of money leads to all sorts of destruction. And the key is, remember God, honor God, 
recognize that even your ability to gain that wealth is his. Give him the credit. Walk with him. Allow him to own you and your stuff. Now we're going to end with 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll pick back up here next week when we start talking about the nuts and bolts. What are some very practical ways that will help me look at my life and find that margin and to be able to step into this generous life? 1 Timothy, two weeks ago, we were in chapter 6, but at the beginning of the chapter, where Paul says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation. Does this sound familiar? And a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Isn't that exactly the description of what Moses is warning God's people about. So now we move to the end of the chapter. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here's what I want you to notice about this passage. It begins by just an acknowledgement that there are wealthy people in the church, He says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. Nothing wrong with wealth. It can be a great blessing. But here's what I want you to think about. This is under that point in the back of your notes, how to be rich. When Paul is writing to rich people, as we've learned over these last couple of weeks, he's writing to you and me, the vast majority of us. As I already said, if you make 32,000 or more, you're a one percenter. 99% of the world's population makes less than you. So when Paul says, tell those who are rich in earthly things, who's he talking about? You and me. So with that in mind, what is it he's saying for us to do? First, don't become arrogant or proud. Don't do exactly what Moses warned Israel not to do, which, by the way, they did. And which, by the way, we do. Lose that sense of entitlement that you think you deserve the extra money you've got. A little humility goes a long way. Second, don't trust in your wealth. It's so easy to count the size of the checking account, the retirement account, the 401ks and the stocks. It's so easy to go there first when we start thinking about the future. And if you go there first, instead of to your knees, that's a good indicator that you trust those more than you trust God. Don't trust in those. Instead, trust in God, who provides everything. God is the one that provides everything we need. I need to learn to trust in him. And then he says, yeah, there's earthly wealth, but then there's spiritual wealth. 
And he describes spiritual wealth in two ways, rich in good deeds and then willing to share what you have, being generous and sharing your wealth. That ought to mark us. Peter understood that when he said, live such good lives before those that don't know Jesus that when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify your Father in heaven. You and I have the capacity to be rich in good deeds. Are you rich in good deeds? Are you a hermit? That's not the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? Thank you, Deborah. A miser. Her word, not mine. Are you what she said? Are you generous in good deeds? And do you share generously of your resources? I agree with Rich, and we'll talk about this next week. I don't think the New Testament requires a tithe. But most people that argue that point are arguing because they're not willing to even give that. They want to get off the hook. God doesn't require a tithe. No, God requires everything. God requires everything. We need to be willing to share. And then here's what comes out of it. If we're generous in good deeds and with our wealth, then we will use our wealth for eternal purposes. In this way, you will lay up treasures for yourself and a firm foundation for the coming age and lay hold of that life that is truly life. I love that phrase. I come to that periodically to talk about the difference between our life in Christ and mere existence, which is what the rest of the world knows. There's living, and then there's truly life. And we lay hold of that by letting go of the stuff the rest of the world thinks makes up their life. Life that is truly life. That's the life Christ came to give And somehow, mystically, strategically, God has entwined our resources, giving it to us, entrusting us with it, just like he's entrusted us with his whole plan of reaching the world. Is that wise for God to put his whole plan for reaching the world for Jesus in the hands of mere mortals? I wouldn't do it, but he did in his infinite wisdom. And how dare we exclude our resources from that, when in fact his very mission for the church can only happen by what he's put in our hands. One of my favorite pastors, Paul Hubley, used to say, the church has all it needs to fulfill what God wants it to do. The challenge is getting it out of our pockets. And so, yes, I am crying for the vision, not only of this church, but the the people of God everywhere, and what God can do. I'm crying out for you to recognize that all the stuff you're holding on to and trusting in is not yours. It's God's, and he's given it to you to help fulfill the mission. And if you're not learning to be generous, you're traveling down a path of spiritual ruin. It's as simple as that. I can say it out of love because what I really want for you is truly life. What I really want for you is the life God's called you to, so I'm also fighting for you. Consider the love of God, the immense sacrifice of his son, and ask yourself, is there anything, is there anything you're holding on to that he doesn't deserve back? Let's pray, and we'll come back to this next week and try to figure out how to get there practically. Father, 
I recognize that every time we talk about this stuff, it can be almost offensive if we're not careful. But we also can shy away from the hard truth that Scripture brings. And above all things, we want you to speak. I want you to speak here. And I pray that my passion has been Holy Spirit given, that my personal conviction about this and the strength that I've used to share it has been appropriate to the way you want to speak. And above all things, where I have fallen short, where I have understepped or overstepped, would you please speak to each heart today about the strongholds in their life, about the things they're trusting rather than trusting you, and liberate them into this life of radical generosity that not only is our responsibility, but is our privilege. And not only blesses people around us, but blesses us so many times over. In Jesus' name, amen.